I had a lot of stuff in this area, you know. I had uh, 13 and a half months in Vietnam and uh, some years of dealing drugs in a drug culture and, and uh, uh, some family stuff. And, and I mean, uh, I something had to happen for me in this area of forgiveness or I was never going to be at peace. What I did not know is the extent to which I was unable to forgive is the extent to which I never felt connected with you. See, if I got one person out there I can't forgive, or let's say myself as well. Mm -hmm. If I got that out there, then I'm, I'm blocked, you see. Four-step, face and be rid of that which has me blocked from God. And as I begin to understand more and more and more about this issue of going through life-driven with no choice, I begin to get free of all this remorse and shame and guilt and everything else around my actions and my behavior. And then I also really begin to, to understand that it's the same with you. Uh, and that, in truth, that self that we can be rid of with God's help, the more that that self began to dissolve, if you will, uh, the less there was this issue ever that came up of forgiveness. Uh, because there's nothing to there's nothing to forgive. And you... Again, if you break it down, why are you forgiving someone? Because uh, there's a part of self that either is either hurt, threatened, or interfered with. Well, what if that part isn't there to begin with? So that's some of my experiences. That, you know, in the big book, in, in the ninth step, in several places, gets into this forgiveness. Uh, and using the words, page 77, go to them in a helpful and forgiving spirit. You cannot manufacture a forgiving spirit. <laughs> you know what? I, I really think it's cute when the drunks get in this 90-10. Well, 90% of the harm is his fault, and 10% is mine. And my response to that is good. Then you're 100% responsible for your 10. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I I think often of my uh, uh, parents, and my brothers, and, and uh, uh, the incredible stuff that happened, and and being able to. Uh, to love them exactly, you know, as they are. And this this was more with, say, myself than, than so with them. But, you know, you, you get to this area of, when you start to wake up a little bit and you start to look at these people that have loved you and cared about you, if you're like me, uh, it just shook me down to my core because I, you know, you sit there and I, I've thought of my mother particularly, you but lays there for year after year and night after night. Is the phone going to ring? And has Mark been scraped off off the pavement somewhere? You know, it's like, how do you set that right? You know, you um, how do you how do you clear that up? How do you get free of that? You know, well, some of it is that you no longer do that, and you're accountable and responsible, and you call with a lot of frequency, and you know, there's a dramatic change in your behavior. And the other thing is to understand that. I wasn't waking up choosing to do that, and those in in those thing areas I begin to get free of that, and as that began to happen within me, then my ability to forgive, if you will, others reached completely new dimensions because I began to understand I did get my best shot from my parents. Uh, I got the best their hard drive could give me. Uh, that's the way it was. You know, it's not going to change. Same with my brothers. Same with and the list goes on and on and on. And. Uh, I'm a free man in that area. There's, there's nothing to forgive. There's no one to forgive. Uh, I can't tell you the peace in my heart behind that. You follow? Mm -hmm. There's a custom they they do, and I think it's in India. It's in one of the cultures, but 
it's a great thing when they meet somebody, they bow, and what they say is basically, is I forgive you before they ever meet you. <laughs> I thought to myself, that's a great, we need that in AA. <laughs> Hi, Dave, I forgive you. My name is Mark. <laughs> right? See, because they understand human nature. They understand that we, we fall asleep sometimes, and when we're asleep, we're not feeling connected with God. We'll do or say things that produce emotion, make me feel hurt. They understand that. They understand on the front end, but uh, anyhow, that's that's all I got on it. There's uh, the beauty of forgiveness, particularly the really, really, really deep harms. In my experience, is that they really are the diamonds that have been dropped into the manure. I've had the greatest epiphanies in my life and the greatest changes spiritually is when I can truly get to the core of what was driving me the worst and the things that were driving me the worst were the things that hurt me the most. Some of it was the behavior that I exhibited when I was drinking. You, know, you, you put the central nervous system to sleep with alcohol and you're surprised why you know some of this bizarre stuff happens. You know, It's all the stuff that you, take, you want to take to the grave you want to talk about. You know, the, the bestiality and the homosexuality and the you know, the, the gang rapes and all the rest of that stuff that happens, the lovely, nice side of the alcoholism that nobody likes to talk about. And how do, you, how do you deal with that? If you were the recipient or if you were the, you know, the person that was perpetrating those harms, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, and if you can come to terms with that by using the tools and really, truly get spiritually free from that, man, the hardest things in your life. And, and just look around the program, the people that have gone through things like that, that have had you know, a, a child murdered by somebody and they go and they make amends to the person that murdered their child for the the, the terrible, insensitive feelings that they had and, and the hate and the, you know, the, the, the true poison that was killing them. They're the freest people in the world. It, it hasn't been a downer. It has been just, it's rocketed them into the fourth dimension. It's been tremendously powerful, powerful experience. Um, two things I'd like to share. Um, one is, is if, if you have a harm that you can't forgive for somebody that's in these rooms, one of the tools that I use that I did not talk about was, imagine if you went out drinking again and the person that you refuse to forgive is the person that shows up on your doorstep when you call in a group for a 12-step call to come save you. Yeah, it, it hurts. It changes your tune. It really changes your tune. That's where the rubber meets the road. Um, there's a guy by the name of Samuel Johnson who lived in the 1700s. <clears throat> he was a lexicographer. Anybody know what a lexicographer was? I had to look it up. Lect lexicographer is a guy who writes dictionaries. And he was witnessing, and he said, God himself, sir, does not propose to judge a man until his life is over. Why should you and I? When I read that, man, it touched a tone in me. Who in the heck am I? There's somebody else that's got a heck of a lot more power that's going to do the final judge. I don't need to do it. Uh, guy by the name of Gerald uh, Jimpolsky. Inner peace can be reached only when we have practiced forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of the past and therefore the means for correcting our misperceptions. Interesting. Our misperceptions. This came alive for me after I'd gone through this work. Our misperceptions can be undone now. And this is possible only through the process of letting go whatever we think the other person may have done to us and whatever we may think we did to them. 
Through true forgiveness, we can stop the endless cycle of guilt and look upon ourselves and others with love. Forgiveness permits us to let go of all thoughts that seem to separate us from each other. Without the belief in separation, we can accept our own healing and extend healing love to all those around us. Healing then becomes a thought of unity. As inner peace is recognized as our single goal, forgiveness becomes our single function. When we accept both our function and our goal, we also find that listening to our inner intuitive voice as the source for direction becomes our only guide to fulfillment. We are released as we release others from the prison of our distorted and illusory perceptions and join with them in the unity of love. It took on a whole meaning for me, completely different. Um, 12 and 12. There's another kind of hangover, that which we all experience. Whether we are drinking or not, that is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday and sometimes today's excessive of negative emotions of anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. It requires an admission and correction of errors now. Don't think that you can put this stuff off. God's grace lasts only as long as ignorance. You're going to get sick of hearing me saying that. We've woken up the beast this weekend. You thought we stirred the pot yesterday? Guess what? We turned on the blender tonight. You know? There's, the time clock has started for you. If you've got this stuff, your life's on the line. And it's been on the line. It's nothing that we did to you. It's been on the line. You were just blind to it. Now you can see that the tiger is ready to strike. Um, around the year with Emmett Fox, here is a sublime precept that we call the golden rule because we are fundamentally all parts of the great mind, because we are all ultimately one. To hurt another is really to hurt your, oneself, and to help another is really to help oneself. The fatherhood of God compels us to accept the brotherhood of man, and spiritually the brotherhood is unity. Remember what I said, God has no grandchildren. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all related. And that really becomes true in the fellowship. We're really a family of choice inside the rooms. And the last thing that I want to share about forgiveness is a, uh, I forget whether it was Mike or, or Barefoot Bill that sent this to me. Uh, a Native American tale told many times around the sacred fire. An old grandfather said to his grandson, who came to him with anger at a friend who had done him an injustice, let me tell you a story. I too, at times, have felt great hate for those who have taken so much with no sorrow for what they do. But hate wears you down and does not hurt your enemy. It is like taking poison and wishing the enemy would die. I have struggled with these feelings many times. It is as if there are two wolves inside me. One is good and does no harm. He lives in harmony with all around him and does not take offense when no offense was intended. He will not fight when it is, he will only fight when it's right to do so and in the right way. But the other wolf, Ah, the littlest thing sends him off into a fit of timber. He fights everyone all of the time for no reason. He cannot think because his anger and hate are so great. It is helpless anger, for his anger will change nothing. Sometimes it is hard to live with these two wolves inside me, for both of them try to dominate my spirit. The boy looked intently at his grandfather's eyes and asked, Which one wins, grandfather? And the grandfather smiled and quietly said, The wolf that I feed. Which wolf do you want to feed? That's the question for tonight. We still got a few minutes. Let's open it up. Anybody want to talk? Unless you got some more. Well, no, we'd like to. Did you want to do the God calling? Did you find that thing? Or no? I'd like to. Uh, well, I did, but it happened to be the blank page. Oh, it was a blank. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to hear from uh, 
like to hear from some of you all in this this area. Do we have those uh, mics? Yeah, there's the mics going on. Anybody got a something that they've that they really couldn't forgive that they managed to forgive? My sailor friend, bring the mic. Not on. Let's try the other one. What is the other one on? Is that that? Let's try it again. Nope. Nope. Try it. Yeah, you're on. I'm Ron. I'm an alcoholic. Ron. Yeah, this this is a a great thing. Uh, this this uh, forgiveness. Um, I too knew nothing about forgiveness and. I got divorced in uh, in uh, 1978. I wasn't all that great about making my payments every month, but I, I, I did the best I could considering everything, and I kept receipts and what have you, and I, and I really wasn't, uh, I was still drinking, and I still wasn't close to the family at all, but anyways, as years went on, uh, I started in sobriety trying to get back with my son and blah, 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 and, and trying to resume and get some kind of a relationship going, but he was on drugs. And I, and I really couldn't get a, a good relationship going with either my ex-wife or my son, you know, as far as at least being able to talk things. So, But we did talk, and I did send money, and I bailed him out of a lot of situations. Out of the clear blue in 1994, about a month after Christmas, I get a knock on the door, and I'm sitting at my computer, and it's a constable, and I get hit with a summons, and the two of them had showed up in Florida, and they were suing me for support, saying they had never seen or heard from me since 78. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just blown away. I mean, I just, I felt that, like you said, the betrayal, the traitor. I mean, I was just, I, I just couldn't understand it. Well, anyways, I uh, I went down, I had to go to court and everything, and I uh, I, I just was a mess of emotions. I, I, I was homicidal. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't understand why they would do this to me. Well, anyways, as the days were in the week, this thing ended up going a long time. And I would go to bed every night and toss and turn and twist and get up and oh man, I mean I was I mean I can understand why people got people killed. I mean I just didn't I was a mess. So then I realized in my program I was talking to people. I started to kneel down every night and I try to do the 21 day stuff, you know, uh, blessing them and everything. <laughs> It wasn't working, you know. So <laughs> my sponsor says, uh, and I, meanwhile I got a lawyer for two fifty an hour, and uh, and, I, and I'm sweating this thing, and they're going after some big bucks, and it, and I and I'm digging. I threw away most of my receipts, and it's really it not looking good at all. And so I just I continued this praying, and I said, well, I kept asking God. I says, I I can't forgive them. I don't even know how to start that process, but but I says I wish them the best, and I says and, and I started going at it this way. I says, teach me to forgive. You know, Teach me to forgive because I don't know anything about this. I want to kill them, not forgive them. And I did this every night for about another 60 days. And finally, you know, the interesting thing is this. The last court date was July the 12th. This all started on February 1st. And I'm sitting in that courtroom not knowing that's going to be my last day. And they're in front of me about two rows, and their backs are to me. I got there a little late, but my case wasn't heard yet. The judge was finishing a one before us. And all of a sudden, I could see the backs of them, and I and this thing came over me. Honest to God, as soon as I'm sitting here, and I says, I'll accept anything this judge says today, 
And, and in my heart, I says, I know that what they're doing, they really don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, and I'm okay. And I just had, I was a wash, just whoosh, just washed right out. Just the most wonderful feeling in the world. I didn't give a shit about the case. <laughs> the judge gets right into this thing, and he starts hearing and rattling. He had already come to a decision. I guess that's what it was. And he's all through, and my lawyer says, pretty good, huh? I didn't even know what he had said. I couldn't understand legal talk anyways. And anyways, that's what happened. He says, you won. He says, he threw it out. I says, you're kidding me. He says, no. He says, uh, you, 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 you're golden. You're all right. He didn't believe them. And you know, I halfway through that case, my son even walked into an AA meeting in Stewart, Florida. And, and I felt, I want to kill him. But I... I had walked out of the thing that day, and I forced myself to walk up around, walk up to him, and I give him a hug, and I squeezed him, and I says, it's okay. I don't know if I meant it. I don't know if I meant it, but I, I did it. And the long and the short of it was, after this case, two years later, my son calls me. He's running from the law in Massachusetts. He's a burglar, and he jumped bail. And he calls me, and he's on the phone with me, and he's crying, and he's asking me what to do, and he, and I gave him, I told him things what I thought he would do. And later on, you know, about two years ago, this is all three years ago now, two years ago, he comes, he calls me on the phone and he's talking about this whole thing. And he says, you know, you know what, you know why I called you that day? He did go back and face the thing and go to jail and get it all done. But he says, you know why I called you that day? I, I said, I don't know. He says, you hugged me outside of that meeting that day. He says, you hugged me. And he says, I couldn't believe you did that. You really hugged me. And he says, I just knew that everything was going to be all right if I called you. you know? I think that's, that's, that's what it's all about. I think we have to even do things if we don't understand how to, why we're going to do them. I really didn't love him that day I hugged him. And I didn't wish him well. But something made me squeeze him and hug him. And I, even, you know, I, and I just did. I squeezed him. And I, uh, I just didn't know. But... I think God works through us in wonderful ways, and I think the wonders we don't understand sometimes, you know. But I mean, I, but I, I, I just, I think we just have to do what we think is the next right thing. And the ego's a killer. My ego didn't want to hug him. My ego wanted to kill him. And I, I mean, and I don't mean that literally, but I mean, I felt so angry at him, you know. Isn't so? God has this tremendous power with us. I think that He can make us go through that and do things that even are beyond our capability. So I'm glad to be here. Glad Thank you so much for that gift. Wonderful story. Anybody else got forgiveness? Yeah, just hand it to the mic. Hi, my name's Anne. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Anne. Um, I have a story of forgiveness that really shocked me. Um, I, growing up, I was one of five girls, and my mother was a heavy drinker and alcoholic, and I got, I was the apple of her eye until I was like, um, I don't know, until I really was out of college and doing things that were getting back to her through my friends who would tell their mothers and really terrible embarrassing things to a mother and um, slowly she put two and two together and realized that I had been like cunning and deceitful and lying and and over this was like um, 
25 years ago now. She sort of cut me off. And I got married, and she was very cold, and she never was liked my husband. And then I had kids, and she would be giving all kinds of things to the other grandchildren, and furniture to my sisters, and all kinds of things, and I would always just get this coldness. And, and I thought it was because she's the active alcoholic, and she hates that I'm sober. And I once had said to her, well, when I was nearly sober, and didn't stay sober, something like, if only you'd get sober. And I thought, well, my amend to my mother is um, my sobriety and my living, you know, a good life and a sober life. And a responsible life. And, but slowly, I kind of, like, just pulled away. And she hurt my kids, I thought, and so I wouldn't go and take them anymore. And she was anti-Semitic to my husband. And so I just was, you know... I'm sober a long time, and I thought doing the right thing. And uh, in I'm I live in New York City, and oftentimes at the end of a meeting, people will say before the Serenity Prayer, um, "Let's take a moment of silence for the sick and suffering alcoholics." And it was like as if there was a pile of beans on one side of my like real like enmity for my mother. Maybe pity, but more enmity that I was so wronged. And um, and I would and I would just see her face like filled with self pity and remorse and all kinds of things. And and during that time of that moment of silence after the meeting, I would think of her, and I would my heart would really like think, oh, I wish she could get sober. And little by little, over the period of a couple of years, um, something shifted in me. And I think my sponsor and I had a long talk one day at the beginning of this. And she said, if you have any hope of that inheritance for your kids, <laughs> there's a little money involved, um, you better you know, have lunch with her a couple of times a year. Don't take the kids, don't take your husband, just you go by yourself. And so I started doing this thing. It was not great. It wasn't, you know, she saw I was making an effort, but it was very cold and very stiff. And um, it was a day, like about a year ago, almost a year, more than a year last spring. And it suddenly sprang into my head all the stuff about my responsibility, about my deceit and about the things that had come back to her, which I'd never really thought about, like, that that would have hurt her. And I wrote her a letter, and it was quite melodramatic, and I wept as I read it, and then I read it to a couple of people, and I rewrote it very simply, taking out all the drama. And I got a letter back from her saying that it must have been a very hard letter to write, and that it moved her. And... Um, and then the next time that I saw her, and every time since then, the relationship has been like, it was like light speed, like whoom! It was like 25 years, or more than 25 years, of 30 years maybe, of this terrible, sour, like tartness, like completely evaporated in these loving phone calls, to talking to my husband on the phone, like please give my love to the children, and just like a shocking thing, just, because of me, it wasn't even that I really did anything. It was such a gradual process. It was like I didn't do anything. It was kind of done to me, I guess. And um, that's my story. Thanks. Would you hand the mic up in front of you? Hi, 
Hi, I'm Mary Nelka. Hi, Mary. Uh, I just want to say, a long time ago, my father uh, drank um, for years, and then he also he just. Stopped drinking, and um, at that point, no no program, so it, it was pretty bad. But anyway, um, I was a great swimmer, and um, for years I resented him. I tried to do some of the physical stuff he liked to do. He was very active that way. And I guess as a child, like um, trying to get his approval. But anyway, through the years, I could I never let him see my kids. I could never um, forgive him, and it was holding me. And I was. Um, going through the steps and um, someone, and I do think God works through people, said to me, you know, I mean, why wasn't I in competition? I mean, I really could have done well. And um, she said to me, you didn't, you were not in competition because you're not in competition because you're not in competition. I never signed up for it. I mean, I blamed my father. I mean, it's a small thing, but it freed me of um, the resentment of my father. I blamed my father for not doing this. I mean, he did the best he could with his hard drive, like you say, and uh, his life was hell when he was young. So, uh, but it freed me up, um, and as, as before he died, um, we were seeing him and stuff, and um, a little reserved, but um, I opened the door, so that, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'll comment on, there's nothing but love, and when you can get rid of that which blocks it, the rest will blossom. You know, I remember at times, having to do some things in this program, uh, there's this issue of, well, I think they might have done more. And I still remember this man saying to me, and I'd say, well, why do I have to do that? And he said, because you can and they can't. Because they're sound asleep. You're close, but... <laughs> you see, and, and see, that's the truth. That's why you, you reached out your hand. She, she couldn't. Your mother couldn't. You reached out 25 years. Boom, just that fast. There's only love. The goal is, what do I do to get rid of that which is between that manifesting itself? See? There's, a, there's a harm in each person's heart. You've got a harm in your heart, and they've got a harm in their heart. The difference is, you've got both keys. You can unlock your heart, and as soon as you unlock your heart, then you can reach out to them and unlock their heart. That's the, that's the difference. When you're spiritual in this program, we don't like to see the fact that we've got both the keys. You know, that's particularly true in divorces. And a lot of people have been talking about divorce in here. I've helped a number of people go through divorce. It, brutal business. Absolutely brutal, brutal business. 99% of the time, there's unfinished amends involved in that. Not. Once the divorce started, guaranteed there's going to be more harms that could occur. But before that, before the divorce ever started, there was unfinished amends, particularly if there was sobriety around and you weren't practicing the principles at home. And uh, I was helping one friend of mine, and, and he came to me, and he knew the divorce was on the horizon just a matter of time, and then boom, the divorce finally starts. And he's like, what do I do? And he starts talking about money and everything. I said, well, wait a minute. There's, there's a harm here, right? He said, yeah. And I said, so do you want to be free? He didn't realize what a trap that question was. Well, well, yeah, I want to be free. I said, great. Give her everything. No matter what she wants, give it to her. Give it to her. Walk away. Ask for one thing. 
goes, what's that? I said, ask her to take your name off the mortgage. That's it. It's all you want. And he swore and stomped and carried on, and but he did it. The divorce was over in like 30 days. I mean, it was like boom, boom, boom. She got his name off the mortgage. Literally within, I don't know, three, four months later, he finds this house on a lake. He buys it by himself because his name wasn't attached to the mortgage. So now he can buy a, a second house and they're friends today. They're not close friends, don't get me wrong, but they're speaking together, they're friends, you know? The, he, and what did it cost him? There wasn't that much money in the house anyway. It was, it was all the emotional banker stuff. And when he walked away with love and said, whatever make you happy, you want the house, it's yours. You want the dog, it's my dog, but yeah, it's yours. You know, and he came back to me a couple months later and he said, you know what? I went over and I saw her again today and she even said I could have the dog if I wanted. Said, but my life is so good. I can't have the dog all the time. I mean, I got bathes, I'm checking out and he's doing all this stuff. His life is great, <laughs> you know? So your view through the pipe may not be what's the best thing. Forgive with love and anything is possible. There was another hand over here. Hi, I'm Ken and I'm an alcoholic. Um, you touched on something before about uh, uh, forgiving somebody in a program um, because they might save your butt. And uh, that happened to me because uh, um, today I have, uh, you know, family members in recovery, but, uh, you know, younger, um, I also was like the apple of my mother's eye. and. When I got well into my disease at a young age of 13, I ran away and, or uh, she kicked me out and she was well on her disease and uh, there was pretty much no talk. We didn't talk. Um, I was pretty much disowned and I had a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. Um, I did manage to get sober um, and come into the rooms at 19. And uh, at the time, I think I had, uh, I think I had over a year, I had, uh, found out that my mother had tried to commit suicide and that she was in a rehab. And I did not want to go there. And uh, I wanted to go in there and, uh, you know, I told her I loved her and I tried to forgive it to the best of my ability at that time. And, um, and I even went to see her at her first anniversary. And, uh, you know, it, I wound up going back out and here again, not talking to her for many more years. I came back at uh, 29. Um, you know, I gave up with alcohol and uh, I tried to quit drinking on my own and uh, I couldn't do it. After eight months, suicide was like a strong option. And why um, I called my mother, I don't know. But she came and got me upstate because I was contemplating suicide. And uh, and, you know, to this day, like I say, she gave me that second life. She came because she always says, like, you were there for me at my first anniversary. Nobody else in the family. You showed up, and I knew that you were so angry, but you tried to forgive me. And uh, and it's funny how it comes back to you. You don't know wh why you're doing it. Because at the time, I did not want to forgive her. I was so angry. It was like, you, 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 you know, for all the things uh, as a child growing up. So, you know, that's what, it, that's, you stirred that up in me and made me remember that. Because it brings tears to my eyes because I can remember her walking in a room crying and here's a woman that never cried and being like, please don't leave me. Please don't do this to yourself. And, uh, and it saved my life.
so just thanks. Thanks for welcome. We've got time for one more real quick one, and we're going to wrap it up. <clears throat> to be quick, uh, I was taken through the book the first time, starting in 1990, four years sober. And when I got to the eighth step, we had a different thing we did with cards than what Dave's been talking about. But uh, some of you probably know that exercise. And um, one of the people on my list was uh, this ex-girlfriend that I've mentioned. Um, and I got to the part where it's like, okay, what am I going to say to the person? Uh, and uh, got clear on the words I was going to use. The book's pretty clear about that. We can't say anything that's going to imply that they have anything to do with what we're talking about, but they caused any part of it. And uh, So I went and made amends to this, this ex-girlfriend for the relationship itself, for the emotional harm that I caused, and left it at that. I knew there were some things that I couldn't bring up because it was going to cause her more harm. Uh, she was in the middle of an inventory and ended up uh, blowing her sponsor off and drinking again. And what she had said, that I wrote on the back of the card, she said, don't just check me off your list as another amend. Be a friend. If I need if I need to talk to you, be my friend. So I would see her from time to time when we would talk on the street. Eight years later, she's coming off of heroin and, and withdrawn from alcohol, and I get to be one of the two people to go 12-stepper. And uh, she was living in Chicago at the time. And I got her hooked up with my old grand sponsor, Paul, and his home group up there, and, and they're pretty fanatical. Um, and she ended up finding a group of women that used the big book as their primary source material and, and was getting taken through the steps. She'd been sober three years uh, last Christmas. I mean, one of the hardest things for me is to, to maintain that posture of there are some wrongs we can never fully write, but we are we were, we would write them if we could to maintain that posture of readiness. And she called me up and said, I'm going to be in town. Can I talk to you about some harm? I think I've caused you. And... Uh, and it wasn't just it's like to hear the harm. It's like I pretty well knew that because I'd written my inventory. I'm like, okay, we, you know, this is it's uh, more for her. Um, but what I was given the advice by that Alan lady I talked about, she said, if you're gonna go make amends, you need to make amends for for what you've done. As far as the abortion, I said, I can't do that. I can't bring it up. I can't imply that she had anything to do with it. And, and I was given that direction. If she brings it up, you have the green light to, to address it all together. I need to tell you. It was midnight mass or go talk to this girl at an Alcapon. And she said, this is the only time I can really meet. I've only got a couple days. And um, and I got to sit across the table from her. And when she said the actual words, then I knew we could talk openly. And within an hour, we were both weeping and holding each other's hands across the table um, because we knew that we couldn't have done anything different. I wanted to say thanks to Dave and Mark, especially for being here this weekend. But there's that last missing piece that I couldn't get at until Mark said it, you know. This lady in my group took away my right to judge myself, and that's a that's a hard piece to give up. Because that, that, that third column is like that's the cross that I hang myself on. It's hard to get free of that. But thank you. You know, there's this concept that life is a pool, and you can throw a negative stone in the pool, and the ripples will ripple out, and they'll hit the sides, and they'll come right back at you, and you'll feel the pain that you caused. Or you can throw a positive stone in the pool. And the ripples go out, they hit the side of the pool, and they come back. It, what kind of stone do you want to throw? I love doing the good deeds because not only does it touch everybody, but it comes right back at you because of the spiritual mirror principle. Um, we've stirred the pot pretty heavy. We've touched a lot of things a lot of people don't want to take a look at. You don't have any choice now, sorry. Um, don't be surprised if you have even more bizarre dreams tonight. Experience them, let them be. All right, don't fight it, just 
let it let it be. I think it's what it's 7:30 tomorrow morning. Is that correct for the prayer meeting in the other room? 7:15. 7:15 tomorrow morning. There's the prayer meeting. We're back in here. Um, let's see, at nine o'clock tomorrow. Um, if you'd all bear with me for just one more second, if we can, you got anything more? I just want to close with a prayer. Okay, if we just get quiet for a second and and I'll close, take us out with a prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this wondrous opportunity to, to share your love and, and peace and serenity as we stretch this path together. And, and we, we thank you so much for the grace that you've brought into our lives to take away the, the fear of seeing the truth we need to see. And now that we've seen the truth, Father, I ask that you help us to face that truth. And until the spiritual body can again be together, I ask you to keep us safe and protected as uh, we go out from here to do our best to live your will, whatever that may be. In your love, we ask it. Amen. Good night, guys. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm Dave. I'm alcoholic. Uh, as always, a little administrative stuff. The 50-50 is going to take place after the next break. So if you need a 50-50 ticket, buy it on the next break because as soon as we start the next session, we're going to do that raffle. And uh, you guys know Barefoot Bill? Where is he? He's over here. Barefoot Bill is another big book thumper and he's an AA historian and he put he's offered to donate a series of his tapes to throw it in there. So we're going to have three tape series raffled and then we'll do the big cash. I think it's like, uh, I think we're running around 240, 250 bucks. So you're going to get 125 bucks if you for your half if you hit it. So and the other half is going to a good cause to the sprinkler system here at the Wilson House to preserve this. Tickets are my wife Brenda right there standing there with the my lovely wife Brenda, my best friend, what spokeswife yes. And I would like to give her, I hate, give her another round of applause. She's been doing the cookies and the candy and. You know, and even though they're not here, I think we should give uh, for those of us that are married and have kids, you know, and for example, my mother is watching my kids. You know, I know there's a lot of people here that their spouses are watching their kids and stuff. Whoever's watching your kids, your dog, your cat, whatever, we should have some gratitude in our heart because without them, we would not be able to be here. So let's give them a round of applause. Um, how's everybody doing this morning? I talked to several people. They were, some people were, were pretty, pretty blended up yesterday and <laughs> came up and told me so. <laughs> uh, I hope that the whole purpose of this is not sadistic. We're not here to, that's not our intention. But that agitation that you guys feel really is the true message that, that this weekend was designed to draw out of you. It's like, it's like a bad tooth. You know, you go... Nobody wants to go to the dentist. Nobody likes, well, you might like your dentist, but nobody likes to go to your dentist because it hurts. But there's such a relief when you finally get that bad tooth pulled. And the, the abscess has been there for a while. All we did was poke at it a little bit, and now it's your opportunity to take up, to fill in, put in your own filling, you know, and with the help of God, you can do that. Um, before we get started today, this morning, I thought we might just get quiet because I know there is some agitation. Everybody's kind of, 
I can sense there's an energy in the room. So why don't we just get quiet? We'll do a little meditation and and uh, and then we'll uh, say a quick prayer and start this thing off. Thank you for this opportunity to come together again as a spiritual body, and we ask Father that you help us to set aside everything we think we know is going to transpire here today and remove the fears of what we might see about ourselves. And we ask that you help us to have an open heart and an open mind for your guidance and direction to help us to make sense of this agitation that we feel inside and to help us to use it as a springboard to motivate us to continue on this path that we may become closer to you through experience, Father. And uh, we thank you for the grace in your name. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, 10-11. We're going to try to make some sense and put together the pieces of what we covered. All the exercises have been handed out. People, some people ask some questions about, you know, uh, do I have to have this all done by tonight? <laughs> no. <laughs> the I probably yeah I should have been telling you this yesterday. I thought I did tell you yesterday, but you know, lately I've been finding out what I think I say and what people hear are two different things. Um, those exercises are to be done at whatever speed you feel in your heart you need to do them. Some people are in a lot of pain. Well, if you're in a lot of pain, you know, if your hair's on fire, I suggest you put it out pretty darn fast. If it's just a smolder, you can let it smolder a little longer if you don't mind the smell, you know. If you're just sitting too close to the heat source, you might like the feel of the warmth and you want to sit there for a little while. You know, enjoy the warmth a little bit more before you eventually get to the point where you get up and move. It depends on what level of uncomfortability you're in. You know, I would suggest that you don't put these down for, for too long. Uh, I would finish them probably within a week for sure, you know, so that you don't lose the connection. So you don't pick up the sheet and go, now what were we doing? I don't really remember. Because if it means having to pick up the cassettes or the, the CDs or something and then listen to six or seven CDs to find where it was on which CD and then try to cover, most of us don't have that kind of energy to get to it. And if we wait until, you know, we're in a real bind and we go, oh, that's right, I got these great things. Maybe maybe this will be my silver bullet that will solve my problem. It's too late, you know. Continue with the process at your own speed. Um, I mean, somebody was asking me last night, I think it's a great suggestion if your sponsor isn't, isn't here, go home and say, hey, you know what, I had this really neat experience this weekend. Would you be willing to do this with me? You know, share this stuff. Carry this message to others, you know. And share this experience that you've, if you've had an experience. I think most people here have had an experience this weekend. Um, the big shift in consciousness has already occurred for most of us. Most of us, when we hit that third step exercise, there was a, I could, I don't know if you felt it, but I felt a huge shift in the room. And that is your motivation from that point forward. Sit down and take a look at the four absolutes. I mean, how well do you want to get and how soon do you want to get well? That's really what we're talking about. It's personal judgment. The people that really need this, their minds are probably so closed that they're not willing to do this and they'll come back to this after they've crashed and burned. It's the people that are in the agitated state, they know they've missed something and it's, they're sort of thinking about maybe it's time to go through inventory or whatever. Those are the ones who are really going to benefit from this, this seminar. At least that's what my feeling was when we started. And I think that's still true today. Um, so... Uh, that's my, 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 my take on that. Uh, do you have any ideas about that? 
<laughs> He's just looking at me. He's sitting over there. Sure, I have a lot of ideas about that. <laughs> I'm more alcoholic. All right. Oh, good morning. Um, a couple of you were asking me uh, how Dave and I met. And I gave a short answer. He stalked me. <laughs> he, uh, true story. Yeah. He, uh, I think he'd got a hold of some tapes or something. And he's pretty persistent. Uh, and anyhow, he finally, we finally hooked up in Austin, Texas, I think in 1998 and maintained contact with each other. And then we got asked to do the Fellowship of the Spirit in New York last year. And so, we uh, thought it'd be a good idea to rework the steps together and get to know each other better and swapping fifth steps. And uh, so uh, he flew in and in our arrogance, because we're so spiritually fit, uh, we figured this would take a couple hours and we'd go out and have a nice lunch and get on with our life. Well, nine and a half hours later, uh, we were still sitting in my house. Uh, and it was, uh, and, you know, it was one of those fifth steps of laughing and crying. And because uh, Dave said something that's important, you know, you. I've done a lot of work with the steps and so has he and so uh, I, I saw the benefit of he and I being able to sit down based on our pretty much a mutual experience and how important that was. Uh, uh, we were both really stuck on some stuff that uh, we hadn't been able to get free of and it took uh, sitting across from someone else with that kind of experience if you will. And uh, So you know if you ever swap fifth steps uh, with someone you know what happens is you have a relationship that's unlike anything you had before that, and, and uh, uh, I think off that experience, with, there's two fellowships in AA, you know, and, and uh, the one we experienced after that was the Fellowship of the Spirit. Dave and I are connected in a way, and will be till till we die. That uh, without that experience, we'd have never been connected. And so, uh, uh, since then, of course, we've just uh, maintained contact with each other. So that's that's kind of how that came about between uh, uh, he and I, but. Uh, you know, what we're going to talk about today for me is the heart and soul of the whole program. Uh, uh, the steps of one through nine are designed to catapult you into the spiritual dimension of the 10th, 11th, and 12th step. Uh, way too much focus uh, spent on the first nine steps. All they are is a bridge. That's all they are. It's a course of action. First three step considerations. First step, am I powerless? Uh, do I have an unmanageable life? Uh, can I do this thing on my power? Can I not drink? Can I live life? Am I satisfied with my life? And the realization that, that no. So in the second step, you know, do I need power? That's really the bottom line of the second step. Do I need power? Come up with a concept of that power. That'll make some sense. And uh, choosing that power is everything or nothing in my life. And uh, from that position, then you, you have a third step decision. You know, where you convince your life running your will cannot and will not work. And my experience uh, is, quite frankly, for most of us, you really got to come face to face with that sober. You know, you see, you, you'll, you'll sit and you'll go in and you'll look at your life when you're drinking. It's pretty easy to say when you're drinking that I'm, you know, I'm convinced my life front of my will doesn't work. The, the time you really need to look at that is sober. Uh, how, how are you doing sober running your life on your will? And uh if you meet that requirement, then you then the book really finally tells you what's wrong with you. Uh, it tells us some things we don't necessarily like. Number one, that all my troubles are my own making, uh, and that they arise from within myself, and that the root of my whole deal is selfishness. And at that time, you must see the connection between your selfishness and dying an alcoholic death. Because uh, if you don't, you won't do the rest of the work. 
See, at that point, the book has moved you completely away from the fact that alcohol is your problem. Matter of fact, they even tell you alcohol is but a symptom. Mark, that's not your problem. This is your problem right here. And they present you with an interesting concept, and that is that the very thing that has created your misery and suffering and will kill you from drinking, you can't do anything about. And at that point in time, you it says you had to find God. You had to have God in your life. And uh, they presented us with a proposition, are you willing to quit playing God? And, and we look at that, and, well, how do we play God? Well, I... You know, I know how my parents were supposed to have been and how I was supposed to have been raised and how you're supposed to be and, you know, on and on and on. And you begin to see maybe why life hasn't worked the way it is. And then you do that incredible third step prayer. You know, you're offering all of yourself to God to build with you and do with you as God wants, not as you want. Uh, you know, it's kind of like for me, I guess, for 36 years of my life, ran around in self-will and you hit that third step and it's like, God, I really appreciate it. But you know what? I'm, I'm resigning here. It's just, I'm done. It's, I'm glad you let me romp around for a little bit doing my deal. Uh, just hit all the walls I want to hit. So uh, from here on out, uh, I'm your guy, okay? Uh, that's kind of the way that, that goes. Uh, it's like I said, for me, the third step today is very humorous. I, I'm going to make a decision to turn my will life over to that which is my will in life. So it's, it's kind of that thing. And then... Then you get to the nuts and bolts. I'm going to face and be rid of that which has been blocked from God. I mean, Dave's made the comment about getting closer to God. Well, of course, closer to God is an illusion. Um, uh, you know, we're like fish in the ocean swimming around asking, where's the water? And, and that's the way it is with God, you see. Where isn't God? So really what happens in 4 through 9 is I get rid of that which has me blocked from being aware of that which is always present, within and without at all times, conscious contact, swimming in water, never not swimming in water. And that's all four through nine do. Uh, you, you enter the fourth step with a complete sense of separation. You're a fish in the water asking where's the water. And these old timers tell you you're surrounded by it and you go, yeah, it don't make no sense to me, you know. Uh, so that's the whole purpose of the inventory. You write a resentment, a fear, and a sex inventory. And uh, the purpose of those inventories is to see how your self-will operates. Getting, trying to get what it wants to make its arrangements. And uh, um, the book is very clear with you and I then why people don't stay sober. They don't, resentment is the number one offender. It's why we drink. Uh, every relapser I've ever worked with, we boil it down, we can finally drink behind a resentment. And resentment, the spiritual disease behind resentment is I'm blocked from the power. And at certain times I have no effective mental defense. I, I don't have the luxury of being blocked. I must be aware that I'm swimming in water at all times. The resentment takes me out of that. So you write through Zemin inventory. And then we talked yesterday about the key to your future. You begin to see in, the, in, in that fourth column, uh, they're spiritually sick, I'm spiritually sick, where am I at fault? And the book does a wonderful thing, which is, is it begins, you have to drop the word blame from your life and take, take responsibility for your life, if you will. You write the fear inventory and you see the very fabric of your being is interwoven with fear. See, the, the greater my sense of separation from that which created me, the more I will be consumed with fear at all times. Fear, dis-ease of the ego. And uh, so you write the fear inventory and then you write the sex inventory. Sex inventory is again a manifestation of my sense of separateness, if you will. So you write those three inventories and you turn around and you do a fifth step. Fifth step, what's this whole function? Fifth step, you're trying to get pulled away from the ego. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, the fifth step, the big book says it's life and death. I, again, I think that's fairly important. You know, 
There's some interesting sentences in there. See, that's another topic. It tells you before the fifth step, this is life and death. That's another, we don't talk about that sentence. What does the book mean? It says this fifth step is life and death. Those are fairly significant words to work with. My experience is it's the death of the ego and the life of the spirit. That's what that's about. So who I do fifth steps with is very, very important. If I go into a fifth step and you're concerned about how I feel, you'll kill me. See, if I'm concerned about how you feel, I'm useless to you. You understand what I just said? See, I'm useless to you. See, I've got to love you enough and get far past that. The ego is not split in half by kindness. So you do that fifth step and you get done. And the interesting thing, if you look at all the promises behind the fifth step, those promises manifest because you begin to get pulled back from the ego. You get done reading this inventory, right? And there's some incredible stuff in there. It says you can be delighted. You can look the world in the eye. You can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Your fears fall from you. You feel like you're walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. The drink problem has disappeared. And in the fifth step, the book is very clear. That's when you begin to have your spiritual experience and not before. And the reason it says that is, is the extent to which you are still ego bound, feeling separate from. You have no sense that there's a spirit that resides within and that's who you really are. And in the fifth step, you finally have an awareness, which is why those incredible promises are there. Uh, it's like it does when you spend an hour in review after the fifth step. You thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know God better. How is it that I know God better? Because really the inventory for me shows me who I'm not. And I get to experience on an intuitive level who I am, which is why I know God better. The wave's a part of the ocean. The wave has all the properties of the ocean, but it can't be the ocean. Yet the wave knows it's a part of the ocean. That's a way for me to talk about what happens to me in a fifth step. And you get done with that. The sixth step is all you've done is made a list of the defects that your self-will has used to operate in the universe to get what it thinks it needs to be okay. And the, and the horrible dilemma in that, is, of course, is that doesn't work. And so the question of the sixth step is, well, here they are. Seventh step is, well, what do you want to do? You know, I, uh, We're the only kind of people, We the sixth step, we ask a question, am I willing to let God take this? Yeah, only a drunk would ask that question. You know, just, let's see, this is what's led to all my misery, suffering. You know, you just, yeah, I got to let me think about this. <laughs> just, uh, I mean, we're, I'm telling you, we're, it's kind of like bitter end or door one door, spiritual living. Well, can I think about that? You know, other people would catapult through the door, you know, but uh, not us. And, and then, the, see, and then the seventh step. This could, idea, could you explain the bitter end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the seventh step, you're offering all yourself to, to God, good or good and bad. And uh, that's that, call it the asset liability line. But basically, it's just take all of me. And because uh, uh, at that point, that ties back into your third step. Uh, build with me and do with me as you want. So take all of me. And you no longer concern yourself about your life. And then, of course, in the eighth and ninth step is where you're going to begin to, seventh step, you're going to connect to that power. Eighth and ninth steps where you begin to feel your sense of oneness with your fellow human beings. And uh, so you go, you make your list and you begin to go out and you, you make amends. And uh, what happens, based on my experience, is there's literally states of consciousness through the steps. And as you get to the ninth step, then you're going to basically begin to experience life in a whole other way. You're going to have a sense of awareness of what I call there's a life beyond your life situation. Prior to me getting to the ninth step, I was consumed with my life situation where I worked in my job, blah, 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 blah. That's all I ever talked about, boom. And then 
something starts to happen to me, you know, and then at that point in time, of course, the book is going to begin to introduce us to the 10th and 11th step, and I'll, I'll let Dave start to talk first. The 10th and 11th step is new language. Yeah, it is not language of the intellect. It is not language of the mind. It is language of the spirit. You cannot practice the 10th and 11th step without having done some work in 1 through 9. You, it's absolutely impossible. Because what 10 and 11 ask you to do is literally, it's a state of consciousness. It's things that will arise from within you that you cannot produce. Uh, and, and I'll talk more about that. And so 10 and 11 are practices to let me be aware of the fact that I'm constantly surrounded by the water, i.e. the power, the power behind the name, right? Uh, and, and to stay in touch with that, you know, uh, incredible thing. So for years, my first 10 years in AA, when I wasn't making this a way of life, 10 and 11, I realized now were words, none of which I could practice. I just couldn't practice them uh, because there was still too much self intact. So. With that, I'll let Dave go ahead and share some of his experiences with uh, 10-11. How many people in here uh, <clears throat> believe in coincidences? I used to. <clears throat> I had way too many things that I can't explain, you know, and... It doesn't really matter whether you believe in them, don't believe in them, whether they... You've, it's your experience. You know, Mark started talking about uh, how we met, and it's funny, I, I really did stalk the guy. Um, <clears throat> what happened was, uh, I, I uh, listened to some of Mark's tapes, and uh, he and Joe Hawk, and, and and I'm a tape junkie by trade, um, and it's uh, it's helped me dramatically. I really believe in, there's a ministry in the, in, in the tapes, and I belong to a Tape of the Month club, and so I get a, a fresh tape, because I travel a lot, and no matter where, if I'm going to go to work, whether it's to the military or to the airlines, it's an hour and a half in the car. You know, so there's a tape. So I, I literally, in the front seat of my truck, I have a case of tapes. That And and when you get to become a tape junkie, which I'm not advocating, uh, you hook up with other tape junkies. It's just like dealing, you know? And you start <laughs> you start trading tapes, and it's like, oh, wow, hey, I got this great set here. And you start loaning each other tapes, and then, you know, and it's a great source for resentments, you know, because... Who the hell did I loan that set of tapes to? They never gave it back to me. I gotta get that back, you know. And um, uh, how did I get off on that tangent? <laughs> anyway, um, because I had a prayer meditation life, one morning I was in, in prayer, and it just came to me: you gotta go find Mark Houston. I said, okay. And I thought about it for a little while, and it came to me again, and it came to me again. And I, I've learned in my life that coincidences pay attention to that little inner voice. And uh, I had been doing some workshops, so I started talking to the people that I that do the taping. I called Glenn, I called several other people, and, and uh, said, I need to track down Mark. And everybody said, well, we don't know where he is. He, he's disappeared. You know, Mark, if you know Mark, he just, he moves. He moves a lot. And, uh, and it was at a stage in his life where things had happened in his life, and he, he explained it to me when I finally tracked him down, is he went on a walkabout. He put all his things in storage, and God sent him to go be with his mom and, and do some things in his life. And, and uh, uh, he was out doing his deal. And uh, when he resurfaced, and I, I gave up after that point. I just I put the word out and I let it go. And I'm talking probably a couple of years later. Uh, somebody says, oh, yeah, you're still looking for Mark? You know, I got a new email address for him. Here's his email address. So great. I fire off an email to him. I said, hey, and I'd like to, like to meet you. You know, where are you? And he said, well, here's my phone number. Give me a call sometime. 
and I'm in Austin, Texas. And the next day, I had a trip that was going to Austin, Texas. And I said, hey, how about coffee? You know, do you believe in coincidences? I don't, you know. So he comes by and picks me up, and I'm looking in his car going, you look a lot different than I thought. You know, 